This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Hello, and welcome back to Ask the Expert on the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host, Steph Storer, and today's topic proves that we will cover almost anything from the Tudor era and beyond. Nothing is off limits here. And that topic is, of course, sex. You heard me. We are joined by the fabulous Catherine Harvey today. And to talk about sex in the Middle Ages. Catherine, thank you so much for coming. Hello. Thank you for having me. Now, I've got to ask you right off the bat, what made you become an expert in this topic? It was sort of a mistake, actually. I I did a PhD on medieval bishops. And yeah, there's not an obvious link there, is there? Because obviously they're supposed to be celibate. But then I started writing about their health and their bodies. And I came across all these stories of bishops who were supposed to have died of celibacy. And obviously my first reaction was, well, that, that doesn't happen. So I wanted to know more about the sort of the medical theory and why they thought that was possible. And it, it got a bit out of control. It turned into another book. What do you know? That's exciting. <laughs> so, okay, well, I think that it is really a riveting topic and I'm excited to get to the questions, but I just want to make sure that our listeners know if you're <laughs> offended easily, you might want to pass on this one, although we love, we would love for you to, to stay and chat for sure. But for everyone else, uh, buckle up and send the kids out of the room and let's get to it, right? The first thing that I want to ask you about today is, was sex for pleasure a practice back then? Or was it all about making babies? Well, I mean, I think it depends who you ask, really. If you ask the medieval churchmen, definitely in theory, their idea is, yes, sex should always be for reproduction. And if pregnancy isn't at least a possible result of sex, then it shouldn't be happening. I think probably in reality for most people, it was more complicated than that. And so although sexual reproduction obviously was very important, as I guess it still is, people did want to enjoy themselves. And actually one of the really surprising things is that if you look at the medical theory, then it becomes really different, difficult to separate out pleasure and reproduction because they thought that to conceive, both couples needed to have an orgasm so they'd admit seed. And and that was how you conceived. So there's actually a surprising amount of stuff in medieval medical texts about how to enjoy yourself in bed and particularly how to pleasure a woman, which I think is probably really quite surprising to us today. Well, furthering on that topic then at the risk of sounding crass, but I think although, you know, that that ship may have sailed. (laughs) How how did they view then other sex acts between the consenting parties? In other words, non penetrative sex would which would be literally pleasure so i mean the the idea is that yeah the, uh, the only sort of permitted form of sex again according to the church and the best form of sex it's thought if you want to conceive is in the missionary position and so that that's sort of what you're supposed to do anything other than that technically is classed as sodomy and that doesn't matter whether it's masturbation or whether it's with the same sex or whether it's with the opposite sex but in the wrong position or the wrong, um, how can I put this, orifice. Um, those are those are all sodomies, so they're all in theory sinful. I tried to try in the book to sort of to find out, well, okay, what did people do? How much did they actually abide by that? And obviously it's hard because it's very hard to find out what people were doing in their bedrooms. 
But there is some really interesting stuff. So we do know, for example, there's quite a lot of talk in sources about um, interfemoral intercourse, which I think is probably not something that gets talked about a lot now, but that definitely seems to have been used as a form of contraception. And that seems to have been used. I've got one case where a man who's accused of having sex with another man explains that they had sex like that because they thought it was less of a sin than anal sex. So I think people probably were sort of more um, exploratory than the church maybe would like them to be. The one thing I found very little about is oral sex. That does seem to have been quite taboo. But even the church acknowledged that sometimes you might need to give another position a go. So, for example, if a woman's heavily pregnant, they can see that maybe the missionary position might not be the best one. Um, so there is a little bit of flexibility. So you mentioned actually um, masturbation in your in your answer just now, and that was something that some of our listeners were wondering about as well. Was that something that was frowned upon? Yeah, I mean, as they technically, it's a sin. It's something you're supposed to admit to in confession and do penance for. Um, I mean, I think broadly speaking, it is seen as a lesser sin than say having sex with somebody of the same sex. And there is this sort of, in some quarters at least, this sort of belief that because it goes back to this idea of people needing to release seeds, and within the um, humoral medical system, they very much believe that if you don't release seed, but either as a man or woman, um, on a reasonably regular basis, it all sort of blocks up in your body and makes you ill. And so there are certain circumstances, if you know, people aren't married, then they may be slightly more accepting of masturbation as a sort of a medical solution, almost to that. And there are actually some texts that suggest that that might be appropriate for, they, t- they tend to sort of couch it in medical terms. So um, it'll be potions that cause sort of gri- gripping. Um, I, I'm struggling again with how to put this politely. Um, yeah, potions that are designed to cause vaginal spasms, maybe let's, let's put it like that. So that the seed is released, which, yeah, to us seems basically like they are recommending masturbation as a medical cure. So, again, there's a bit of a gray area there. So if you think that there is some even slight recommendation for masturbation, was there anything that would resemble pornography, even help people or things like that at the time instead of these kind of tinctures or whatever you were saying they might yeah there doesn't seem to be i mean some people have argued that actually there was no such thing as pornography before the 16th century and that really it's something that gets invented in italy in the 16th century and i think probably that is when the first pieces of what we would sort of recognize as erotica come in um i mean it's very hard to tell because there are all these sorts of weird images in manuscripts sort of um there's a famous one with a nun picking penises off a penis tree um there are some what we would consider to be sexually explicit images in churches um things like the sheila leg gigs that people that are um a woman exposing her genitals um nobody really knows what they're about they're probably not folk magic but they might have some sort of protective function or some sort of pedagogical function but why i mention those is because i think they suggest that sort of our ideas of what is erotic have changed quite a lot since the Middle Ages, because definitely now I can't imagine any church going, let's put a great big statue of a naked woman in here, um, sort of as a, as a pedagogical thing. So I think it can be very hard for us to tell, well, would a medieval person have found that sexy? Would they have found that arousing? Um, 
definitely they were happy to write about sex in literature. Definitely they were happy to, you know, have have nude pictures in certain contexts. But exactly how they were using them can be hard to tell. Do you know anything that they did find as sexy? Like, what did these medieval people find to be attractive? Because one of our listeners actually had mentioned that that they heard that at the time ankles were considered to be a sexy part of a woman's body. Is that something that you found in your research? Um, I, I think that does seem to come up, doesn't it, in any society where it's normal for the ankles to be covered. But I think definitely, yeah, you can get some ideas about what they found attractive. According to medieval literature, women were obsessed with large penises, um, whether that's true or whether that's what male authors are assuming they're obsessed by. Um, not quite sure. Definitely in terms of the ideal woman, I think probably the most surprising thing to us probably is that they have a very strong associate large breasts with promiscuity. And so a woman with little breasts is seen to be sort of virginal pure, the sort of woman you, you want to marry. She's going to be a nice girl. Yeah. So I think that's probably quite interesting to us. Quite surprising, maybe. Now, what about sex outside the marriage. We hear about mistresses and things like that in the court. Unfortunately, we hear about it a lot. But how common was it for kind of just lay people to take a mistress or have extramarital affairs? Was that something that was as prominent in just everyday culture as it was at court? I think probably not. I mean, obviously, it does happen. But there is this whole sort of restrictive framework um, of, you know, what what the church says you're allowed to do, what the courts say you're allowed to do, and sort of any extramarital sex is likely to end you up in court. Um, the, not many people get executed for things like adultery in the Middle Ages or sent to nunneries or things. That's mainly something that happens in films. But definitely, you know, if you have an affair and you get caught, you are quite likely to end up paying quite a heavy fine or having to undergo quite a humiliating punishment. There's quite a lot of sort of parading people through through the streets in their um, sort of undergarments to the church in, in public pen- penitential processions. In France, the south of France, at one point in the Middle Ages, they get quite keen on a punishment called running, where they strip the adulterous couple off their, of their clothes and tie them together at the level of the genitals and parade them through the streets like that. So... Yeah, something that definitely people are keeping an eye on. And often people are encouraged to report their neighbours to the authorities if they're up to no good. And something that, yeah, you're going to be punished for in quite a humiliating and potentially expensive way if you get caught. So there's quite strong incentives to behave yourself. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so speaking of rules and, and things like that when it comes to sex, I have read that there were several days on the calendar that sex was forbidden. So it seems like there's kind of a lot. So is there any truth to that? And if so, who who enforces the, those types of rules to make sure that, you know, peering into people's houses and nobody's <laughs> doing anything on these holy days and things like that? Like, how is that enforced? Yeah. And when were those days? Yeah, so there are all sorts, according to the church, all sorts of times when you shouldn't be having sex. Lent, obviously, is a big one. Um, Advent, I think, and then various days throughout the year. Um, so yeah, if you're following all those rules, it does get quite restrictive. That that did relax a bit in the 12th century and the early Middle Ages. They were sort of really strict about this. In from the 12th century, they start to go. Well, this is sort of 
strong advice rather than something you actually have to do. And they become very keen on something called, which is the idea that spouses effectively owe sex to each other and that there are very limited grounds on which you can turn it down. Um, and so they start to get the idea that, okay, well, you're not supposed to have sex on, say, Good Friday, but if your husband wants to have sex with you and if you don't let him have sex with you because it's Good Friday, he will go off and have sex with somebody else or he will masturbate or whatever, something else that's a greater sin, then, okay, go ahead because that's the alternative. So that there is a bit more flexibility there than there was in the early Middle Ages. Um, still something that you're supposed to confess and that you, you should avoid if you can. Um, but yeah, there is a bit of flexibility there. In terms of how that's policed, yeah, I mean, obviously what goes on on private is very hard to police. So part of it would be people, I suppose, feeling guilty um, and confessing and then having to do penance for it when, when they go to the priest to make, to make their confession. As I said, that there is all this also this sense within communities that neighbours definitely do report each other for things that they're not meant to be doing. I think that probably tends to be more with things like adultery, you know, that the neighbours will go, her husband went off to market and as soon as he went off to market, her, her boyfriend came in and they report them for things like that. But I think probably we also maybe do need to think about how little privacy the average medieval person had. You know, we're talking about very small houses, often several generations living in one room, or at least two generations living in one room, and quite flimsy dwellings. There are cases I've come across where somebody reports something they saw through a hole in the wall um, or something like that. So that, you know, you are quite limited on what you can get away with in private unless you've got quite a um, luxurious dwelling. Now, if you are of the mindset that sex is not only meant for reproduction, but you can have it for pleasurable purposes, what types of contraception did they use? Um, like what, in what ways did they try to prevent pregnancy? Yeah, so I think there's probably more of that than, again, that you might think. Um, I mean, a lot of it goes back to this idea that the two seeds, the male and female seed, need to mix in order to conceive. So a lot of it is about things like the withdrawal method and suggestions like, um, you know, if you want to conceive after you've had sex as a woman, you lay still because they're very preoccupied with the idea of all the seed running out of your body and, and that'll stop you conceiving. So if you don't want to have a baby, then you do the opposite. As soon as you've had sex, you get up, you jump up and down, you run up and down stairs, you sneeze, anything that will get it out of your body. So that's one approach. There are also all sorts of um, sort of preparation, things you can take, things you can put on your genitals, Um and some of them, again, are to do with this sort of um, mechanics. So things like putting oil on your genitals to make them slippery, again, to encourage everything to slide out. Um, but alternatively, things that are supposed to work in a sort of a humoral sense. So lust is supposed to be provoked by heat. So eating sort of cooling foods to to, to um, reduce your lust, that, that's one strategy. But then there are some really weird stories that, it's quite hard to see how they work. There was one story that sticks in my mind about a woman who children, and then she swallowed a bee, and after that she never conceived again. Um, so I, I'm not recommending that one. Don't try that one at home. Um, and some, there's quite a lot involving dung. Noted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, some involving things like sort of smearing dung on you that you think, well, I, I don't think anybody would want to have sex with you if you did that, so maybe that's how they work. But yeah, there there are various options you can try. 
how well they work might be um, might be interesting to well no don't again don't don't try and find out but um, they, they certainly people certainly did try to control their family size this idea that you know sort of everybody in the middle ages had dozens of children and that was just it no now these there were obviously some people that wanted to prevent any pregnancies and that would be sex workers mm-hmm. so how prominent was this field um, at this time? Yeah, so this is a really interesting one because, I mean, unsurprisingly, the church was pretty consistently opposed to it. And, you know, their main strategy is, well, no, don't do that. And then to try and sort of um, reform penitent prostitutes, they're, they're very keen on that, and sort of build, building special, essentially, convents for them to go into to reform themselves and all that sort of thing. But more broadly, there's a shift through the Middle Ages from in the sort of 12th, 13th centuries, urban authorities very much do the same. They very much try and expel the, the sex workers from the city, very much try to ban it. And then around 1400, 1300, sorry, we start to see some towns creating um, what are essentially legalised red light districts and city brothels where sex can be sold. They seem to decide, okay, they can't get rid of it. They're going to regulate it. And that benefits the city both because the city can take the um, some of the profits, but also because it allows them up to a point to regulate how what went on in those places to prevent real serious mistreatment of sex workers, um, to try and control who could go, all that sort of thing. So, yeah, that that's one bit, big change. Um, I mean, I, I, yeah, I've got a whole chapter on prostitution in the book, um, and I've tried to sort of find out as much as I can what life was like in a medieval brothel. And I, th- I mean, in a lot of ways, it's it say there's a lot of continuity. So they're struggling with things like trafficking. You know, people have done studies of brothels in late medieval Italy, and you see that virtually all of the women are either from other regions of Italy or are foreigners or immigrants. You see a lot of mistreatment of women, women forced to have abortions, women who are beaten by their clients, beaten by their pimps, a lot of fights between clients, or the neighbours complaining about sort of the, the destructive effects of having a brothel in your road. It's a lot that's very um, familiar to us there, I think. It really is. And now something that comes to mind when you think of a brothel or or even you know even just a regular home actually i guess it's not really unique to situations like that but the hygiene and you know maintaining i guess just maintaining your hygiene down there um there must have been you know infections or stds or things like that that just would come about and and they didn't have the medical care obviously that they have now so what did one do, either male or female, what did they do when they, well, I guess would would have some sort of an outbreak, I guess is the yeah. politer way to put it. Yeah. So I mean, they very much see um, sort of sexual health problems in terms of, again, the humors and in terms of having too much or too little sex. So that really, for them, would be the, the big danger of the brothel that, you, you know, you're having too much sex and, and that's going to make you ill. Um, although that there is this appreciation that some things are sexually transmitted, one of the things they're really worried about actually is leprosy, because they get this idea that the um, womb can sort of 
retain the leopard semen and that produces poisonous vapors and she'll pass those on to her next class something that um, they're quite worried about and you do there's a, there's a brilliant story of a, of a chap called um arnold i think his name is in the south of france who um sort of recalls how years ago years ago when he was a student he went to a brothel and the next day his face started to swell up and he thought he got leprosy and after that he swore off sex with women that was it he had sex with men instead which obviously isn't a problem to the um obviously isn't from a sort of alpha perspective a solution to the problem of stds but he seemed to think that that would work but so there are treatments i mean that you know that they they sort of have various recommendations for washing your genitals um with often with things like vinegar um they, you might have you might be phlebotomized you might uh, have various ointments there are some really deeply unpleasant things there's a chap called john of ardern who's a, an english surgeon in the 14th century and he records a case where um a man's penis swelled up after he had had sex and it was really painful and sort of burning and aching and clearly to us an std um and he treated this man by chopping away the dead flesh and putting quicklime on his penis um which i mean must have been excruciatingly painful but he reckoned to cured him so um yeah not again yet another don't try that at home i think I don't think you have to tell people that. This doesn't sound like something that people are going to try <laughs> no, without no. a disclaimer. <laughs> now, you've mentioned homosexuality a couple of times, and, and that's definitely something that I want to cover before we end today. How prominent was homosexuality during the Middle Ages, and how open could people be with it? Yeah. So, I mean, I... Th- I- I tend to be a bit careful about using terms like that because obviously it's it's a 19th century word, I think, homosexuality. And definitely in, in terms of the Middle Ages, I and mean, I don't talk about heterosexuality either. I think they're all sort of anachronistic. But I mean, definitely were there people who had sex with people of the same sex, were attracted to people of the same sex? Absolutely. Um, and again, they get a chapter in the book and then you know various other mentions. In, in terms of how sort of common it was, how it was treated, there's quite a lot of variation. I mean, again, broadly speaking, the church obviously is opposed. Um, but you get certain places, Florence, in the late 14th and 15th century, becomes absolutely notorious as a place where men have sex with other men to the extent that um, it becomes a nickname. They're called Florences. Um, and the city sets up an, a, an institution called the Office of the Night, which is concerned solely to prosecute men who have sex with other men. And they deal with thousands of cases over the sort of century that this, this institution exists. Um, and they uncover a lot of casual sex. Um, they also sort of cover, uncover some what are clearly serious long-term relationships. Um, there's, e- there's even one case of a, of a couple of men who, who have exchanged some sort of marriage-like vows. Um, but what what is interesting about that is that it says it's really prevalent. I can't remember the exact figures, but it's it's a it's a really common practice in Florence, and it's something that although eventually you can get um, set, um, exiled from the city for, or sort of yeah serious corporal punishments for, it, it is almost to the point where it seems to be viewed as a life phase, and so certainly it's something that people are prosecuted for several times. 
um, not something that you you automatically get executed for. Other places there are there are panics. You know there are pan- where lots of men get executed for having sex with men within a very short time. And then there are places. I mean, England. Basically, there isn't a statute against sodomy in England before the reign of Henry VIII. There are a tiny, tiny number of cases, and it's very hard to understand why that is. Because I don't think that's because medieval England is some sort of um, super tolerant society. Um, I think it's more that, yeah, it's sort of what they consider to be deviant sex tends to sort of provoke panics at certain times, and then to be sort of brushed under the carpet at others. Um, and you, I think you see that even more with with women who have sex with other women who. From the entire Middle Ages, I think we have about a dozen cases of that, and so that's that's really real. And let's face it, nobody honestly thinks only a dozen female couples existed in the Middle Ages. They do tend to get executed, and what they really seem to be concerned about in that case is women who sort of impersonate men because they very much see sex in terms of something that one person does to another. And even when they're talking about same-sex couples, they still impose that. They still see one person as taking what they think of as the male role and one person taking the passive female role. Um, and so, and yeah, they, they map that onto same-sex relationships too. I'm sorry, I think I'm not, have I started rambling? No, no, <laughs> no not at all. That was, it's, it's very helpful. I think that what, what I was hoping to clear up um, furthermore then would be when you when you talk about things like persecuting them, mm-hmm. is it is it for the act of what they're doing, and therefore could it be punishable also between a man and a woman if if they were doing things that were not you know your your normal everyday run of the mill sex <laughs> type things, or is it only when they know that it is two same sex people? Does yeah. my question make sense? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in theory, I mean, yeah, anybody can be punished for sodomy. There are odd cases where men get into trouble for sodomizing their wives, by which in that context, well, I mean, anal sex. You know what? But, if I mean, you could just explain to our listeners really quickly then, what would be the definition of sodomy, just so that we're all on the same page yeah. here? Okay, so, yeah. So, so, I mean, basically, so- sodomy is anything other than missionary position for the purposes of reproduction. Um but I guess it goes back to what we were saying about visibility. And obviously, two men having sex are obviously doing something that the church doesn't approve of. Whereas a man and his wife in private are far harder to, to trace. So in reality, that very, very rarely ends up in the courts. Because probably one or the other of them is going to have to confess to it before it gets there, isn't it? And so it probably doesn't. There are there are odd cases that come up in, in Florence, in the courts there, in, in with the Office of the Ninth. Where in the context of a discussion about a man who's had been accused of having sex with other men, somebody mentions, oh, well, actually his wife left him because she wouldn't let him sodomize her. Um, that's probably the closest I've found. And do you think that um, two women were viewed the same as two men? There seems to be a bit of confusion about sort of what two women can do together. Um, because I think that of this sort of very um, very phallocentric view of sex, and so it almost if there's not a penis involved, well, what are they doing? There's another there's an Italian case where in in the sort of one of the witnesses says that he discussed with this woman her attraction to other women, 
and she'd essentially had to explain to him what, what they did. And she, she mentions using sort of dildo type objects. Um, so yeah, that does seem to may, may have been something I guess that let, let a lot of relationships go under the radar in terms of two women. Um, you know, so the, the, there have been people who've suggested that, and I think it's a fair point that we need to think, you know, what wider evidence might be used. There's, there's a, um, a little brass that I mentioned in the book, a memorial brass of two women, which is in a church not that far from where I live, actually, in the south of England. Um, and these two women, they never married. One of them died about 30 years before the other. But they had a shared brass in the parish church of one of them. Now, should we see that as evidence for a relationship? I mean, clearly, clearly it's evidence for a meaningful relationship of some sort, but is that a close relationship between a pair of spinsters? Are they what we'd now call lesbians? It's hard to know, but I think there's probably value in it being open-minded about it. Now, shifting the focus again just to men. Okay. <laughs> what? We'll talk a little bit. Some of our listeners had some questions about impotence. Now, in this topic, were there any cures? Was this something that they didn't look for cures for because they were too embarrassed to admit it? to admit that it was happening and how vocal were people about this topic? Yeah. So there is stuff in medical texts about it because they were concerned about, well, from a medical point of view, or at least the justification for putting it in these books was that of course impotence prevents you from conceiving and that's supposed to be the point of marriage. So yes, it's something that you should treat. A lot of it, sort of revolves around the idea of warming up the body to provoke lust, that there are certain foods that you can eat that might help. Um, so there are things that in theory you could do. Where most of our um, sort of information about impotence comes up is that it was actually one of the um, very few reasons for which a woman could seek an annulment of her marriage if her husband was impotent and their marriage couldn't be consummated. And there are all sorts of hoops you have to jump through to get that. It's, it's a really complicated process. But there are marriages in the Middle Ages that were annulled on grounds of impotence. Um, that, say it wasn't an easy thing to do. It, it often it took a process that took several years. You often had to go undergo sort of really intimate examinations um, in which they would try and arouse the man to, to try and see whether he, he really was impotent or whether this was just a yeah, spiteful accusation by a woman who wanted a divorce. Um, there are some fantastic descriptions for, from the York Church courts of these examinations, um, and a disturbing number of them seem to have involved almost, you know, the neighbours coming coming to have a look and and uh, seeing what you were capable of. And it feels like the, the level of embarrassment that must have caused. That they, they they're quite funny to read, but um, I'm not sure it would have been quite so funny to live through. Now, before I let you go, I know that we have kind of hinted at your book a few times throughout our conversation, which has been riveting for the last 30 minutes or so. And I want to make sure that if our listeners have any more questions about sex in the Middle Ages, that they can get your book and read all the juicy details. <laughs> so can you let us know uh, the name of your book again and where can we find it? Yep. So the book is called The Fires of Lust, Sex in the Middle Ages. Um, it's out now, published by Reaction, um, available from all good bookshops, um, Amazon, etc. Um, the, the paperback is out um, in the UK and in the US. Well, we are certainly looking forward to reading that. 
I want to say thank you so much for joining us today, Catherine. This has been such a fabulous conversation with uh, some topics that not everybody likes to talk about, but I think that more people are probably interested in hearing about than they would probably like to admit. So thanks for joining us. Um, And of course, thank you to our listeners who wrote in with questions. We couldn't do it without you guys. And you guys had some great questions for us today. And of course, thank you to everyone listening to this week's episode. So as always, we appreciate your support and we hope you'll tune in again next time as we continue to ask our experts the pressing questions you want answered. And if you love the Tudor's Dynasty podcast and you want to show even more support, please consider becoming a patron where you'll not only receive the great content we're offering now, but extra insider research, info, prizes, and other exciting opportunities. Until next time, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.